welcome to When Women Preach. This podcast exists to empower AAPI and Latina women faith leaders. We have a returning guest. Her name is Dr. Kay, and she was one of our very first, if not the first, uh, podcast episode guest. And she did one with um, our executive director and co-founder of Isaac Youngly Hertug. So it's wonderful to have her back as a returning guest as we're on our third season of our podcast. So Dr. K. Higuera-Smith, PhD, is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies and Program Director of the Religious Studies Minor Program at Azusa Pacific University. And as a bicultural white Latina, she writes about social justice issues as they relate to gender, ethnicity, and decoloniality. Her publications include Editor-in-Chief of Postcolonial Evangelical Conversations, Global Awakenings of Theology and Praxis, and Contributor to Reading the Bible Around the World, A Student's Guide to Global Approaches. And she currently has two books under contract, one uh, on the historical figure of Mary of Nazareth and another on Latinx biblical interpretation. But this is not including the number of articles and chapters and many more of which she has written. Um, and one of the ones that we're going to be talking about today is her specific chapter on uh, Sarah and Hagar. And that's from our book, The Biblical Study Guide for Equal Pulpits. Um, so thank you for being a guest on our show and for all of your support over the years. You've been a supporter of Isaac for quite some time. And so we're, we're just really excited to have you. So thank you for being here. Thank you. So I want to start off by asking you the question as we explore more in depth about your chapter in the Biblical Study Guide for Equal Pulpits. Um, what does a more equal pulpit mean to you? Everything I read as a scholar of, uh, of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible, as well as the uh, Second Testament, or the New Testament, points to a very strong commitment to uh, the enfranchising of and giving voice to those on the margins. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the people of Israel themselves saw themselves on the margins of society and that there were so many major empires that conquered and controlled them almost throughout their entire history. And, um, and so there is much that is very subversive of any kind of uh, power that is not based on uh, a, a, a moral uh, power, that is power based on coercion, external coercion, or coercion by uh, custom. Uh, as a result, when we read the New Testament and we see the preaching of Jesus in the Gospels where he reinforces this kind of idea, um, it, it really uh, challenges any kind of assumption of the primary right of males alone to preach from the pulpit. Uh, and that's throughout, not only the Gospels, the Book of Acts, where Peter, Peter prophesies your sons and daughters will prophesy, um, the existence of female prophets, female apostles, female house church leaders, female preachers and teachers, both in the New Testament and in the early church, much of which was suppressed in later church tradition, all of that um, indicates to me that uh, the pulpit is a place that needs to be need, needs to be open to uh, men and women, 
So you make a really good point that it's all throughout scripture, really. Um, and so thank you for providing that definition for us. So to give that, that's like our baseline and our framework. So in, in your chapter, so you highlight Sarah and Hagar. And I think you make a really good point in that women in scripture are often overlooked, but when we overlook them, we can really miss the movement of God within history through these women. And so you really talk about how if it wasn't for Sarah and Hagar, then even though we hear mostly about Abraham, we, we wouldn't have uh, been able to see the way that God really moved and fulfilled the promise. So what are some of the ways that you find women collectively moving now within the church that are often overlooked, but it can benefit the church? Well, you see so many ironies. And of course, when you say the church, uh, <laughs> there are so many mm-hmm. expressions of the church. There are many denominations where it's functioning really in a very healthy manner. Um, the Episcopal churches are doing a wonderful job of, um, and the AME churches are doing a wonderful job of highlighting and honoring and naming the work of women and not hiding it and suppressing it, but demanding it anyway. Uh, some of the uh, Presbyterian churches are also, and Methodist churches are doing an excellent job. I think the ones that struggle the most are the non-denominational evangelical churches because they have very little sense of history hmm. uh, they haven't uh many of their pa- uh, clergy are not educated on church history and they're drawing from the social pressures of our time of the 20th century and the 21st century that draw from uh, a lot of naive understandings of how gender gets developed within the church hmm. so what what do we see that's healthy uh we see Women as senior uh, pastors, as bishops, as presiding elders, uh, as decision makers, as uh, prophetic voices within the church, and being honored for that, uh, and um, and the fruit of the spirit of their work coming coming forward. What do we see that's not healthy? Um, we see an ideology that uses women but does not honor them. And that is not gospel, and that is not according to the Spirit of Christ. Uh, what you see are uh, women who are teaching the Sunday school programs and teaching the children and teaching the youth and often working behind the scenes to do three-fourths of the work that is in the church and doing that all on a volunteer basis with um, very little honor and no remuneration. That's not healthy. Um, it's always interesting that these churches who uh, take out of context and misquote First uh, Corinthians 14 about women being silent in the churches, but at the same time, they have the, children, the women doing all sorts of things that require the use of their voice. They only want them silent in the pulpit, but that's not what First Corinthians 14 says. And even, even in that, First Corinthians 14 is specific to a particular situation rather than a universal claim. Um, So there is a lot of uh, inconsistency in the churches that argue for a a biological determinacy. This is what's really happening. The ideology that women should not be in leadership in the churches comes out of of the ideology of biological determinism. 
That is that one half of the population is biologically determined for all time and all history to submit itself to the other half of the population at worst or at best um, the, uh, the, the one that the, that one half of the population might marry. And um, this is not a biblical idea. It's a distortion of a biblical idea. Uh, it was used to justify slavery, that black people were biologically determined to submit to white people. And we've seen what an evil and pernicious uh, ideology that is, but we cling to it when it comes to gender. And because of that, those churches that are operating in an unhealthy manner are operating with this kind of biological determinism, which which contains within it so many uh, logical inconsistencies. So you have... Uh, you know, you have women who are told, to, again, to be silent in the church, but then they're teaching your children. And supposedly it's because women are more prone to deception. Well, if women are more prone to deception, the last people you want them teaching are your, are your kids. But this shows that this isn't really about that. Uh, or these same kinds of churches will send women to the mission field where they can teach brown and black men. Uh, which shows a race, racialized and colonialized understanding of mission because it's okay to teach black, brown and black men, uh, for a woman to teach brown and black men, but it's not okay for a woman to teach white men. So that this, once you start digging into the logical consistencies of this ideology and then also holding it up against the model of the Bible, which argues that all God's people can prophesy, all God's people have voice to offer to the church, then that that uh, ideology could begin to collapse. What keeps it up is because it is so powerful and because it is tied to an entire social identity. I had one student who, she, who came out of one of these churches that was very conservative in this regard, and as she began to read the scripture in a different way, through a different lens, realizing the interpretations she had always accepted as givens were just interpretations, one above others, that she was actually excommunicated from her church and from her entire family, including her own twin sister. So for many women, uh, it's just easier to go along with it rather than to, to uh, suffer the disenfranchisement from everyone you know and love and care about. And this is big problem as well that often is not discussed. How did she come to that realization that I, you know, for her to read the Bible in a different way? She really came to this very prayerfully and thoughtfully and in counsel with me and with other of her, of her instructors, uh, her, her um, Christian uh, instructors at our institution. And, um, it was a choice that she made, but it cost her everything. Uh, I haven't stayed in touch with her, but my prayer is over the years that she and her family have reconciled. But they were extremely harsh towards her simply because she didn't even go into preaching. She went into Fuller um, uh, Seminary as a uh, to study um, uh, therapy, and even at that, they they actually excommunicated her and cut her off because she did not subscribe to their ideology of women as being biologically determined to be 
necessarily submitted to either their husbands or to all men. And where does that where does that biological determination come from? Where where is the source of that ideology? There is in uh, you know the, during the, the slavery era, white preachers would cite in the Torah where uh, the Gibeonites God calls mm. on Gibeonites to uh, to forever be hewers of wood, hewers of wood and drawers of water because they had fought against the Israelites. And so uh, the white supremacists uh, in the in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries uh, drew on this to justify uh, their legacy of slavery. And mm-hmm. during this era, biological determinism was a popular notion. But when it comes to gender, it, it goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle argued that women were... Uh, that, that he did not understand biology. And so he argued that uh, the reason that young girls were born was that originally because he did, they did not understand that the woman has an egg, that there was a sperm and an egg. In, the, in antiquity, they thought that the woman's womb was just sort of like soil and that the, the entire human was present in the sperm or the seed. And so just as you put a seed in soil, the soil only contributes nutrients. It doesn't contribute any DNA to the seed. And so Aristotle assumed that was the case with, with humans as well. And so he argued that some women, because of a defect in their bodies, did not have enough heat to, uh, to, to heat the, the fetus, the embryo, to the point that the genitalia would grow on the outside of their body into a penis and testicles and become males, those, those um, rios that did not have proper heat then were essentially deformed males. They should have been males, but they were not properly formed. They were born as females. And because of that, he argued that women uh, did not have the, the capacities that men had. This gets played, this gets going forward all through the Greco-Roman period. And the church picks it up very, very quickly and adapts itself to the norms and what was considered the science of the day. We're talking uh, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries, uh, sixth century. It was just scientifically accepted that women did not have the mental capacity that men had. Of course, it was also accepted that barbarians or non-Greeks or non-Romans also did not have the mental capacity that men had. Uh, And so when they would read carnal Israel or Israel according to the flesh, what they interpreted that as was that the Israelite people also did not have that same mental capacity. So biological determinism comes out of Aristotle that it does, or, and out of racist um, 18th, 19th century poor mm. science. It does not come out of the Bible. And I can say that because while you have the story of the Gibeonites in the Bible, and you have the story of the anim- the uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites that, you know, they will not join the people of Israel, sometimes up to 10 generations. But then you have the story of Ruth, who's a Moabite, mm-hmm. comes the grandmother of King David. And that story subverts that ideology. And you have stories repeatedly that are subverting these kinds of ideologies. You have in the Leviticus, you're told that, that a eunuch or someone with crushed testicles cannot enter into the, the temple to give sacrifices. And then in Isaiah, 
it says that I will welcome my eunuchs and, and that they will be as those who have multiple children. And so you have a subverting of, of that. So where you often will have a, some kind of a statement that legitimizes some kind of an oppression of a people group later in the same corpus of scripture written by a different author within that tradition, it gets subverted, it gets undermined, it gets changed. So uh, what happens is you get people who are prone towards racism or prone towards um, misogyny um, or who, for whatever reason, they grab onto that earlier text and they ignore the later text that subverts. And that's, that's the problem that we have. Hmm. So the other, I think the other question that you pose in your chapter is, is about patriarchy. Um, and, and I think that this goes along with what we're talking about now is, did patriarchy exist in the Pentateuch? So can you just provide for us a brief description of the type of patriarchy that you're referring to that we understand it as? Yes. And this is one of the problems is what patriarchy are you referring to? People like to say biblical womanhood. Well, biblical womanhood was cha- was very close to chattel slavery. And there are mm-hmm. excellent books that are written by this to, to show that. That is, those categories of uh, gender are all tied to economic functions. And those functions serve to uh, support the, um, the village, you know, the, the economic integrity of a, a village, of agrarian village life or agrarian or, um, in the case of, of the Pentateuch, often it's, um, nomadic life. Um, and they, they generally support the interests of the male head of household. And the way we know this is um, if we draw on rabbinic tools of studying biblical law. I did my PhD both in early um, New Testament, but also early Judaism, and studied with uh, rabbinic Judaism throughout my undergrad and grad. And um, the way that in rabbinic tradition you interpret biblical lies, you draw the general from the particulars. And as you take several particular laws, and then you ask, what general principle can we draw from those? And if you look at the particular laws about gender, and then ask, what general principle can we draw? There tends to be a, a real concern about protecting the economic integrity of the male head of household. So the patriarch of that time, patriarchy of that time served an economic purpose, not an ideological purpose. You don't have the kind of ideological patriarchy that we see today. Because of that, there are many times that that patriarch, those patriarchal assumptions in the Pentateuch get challenged and uh, subverted within the same Pentateuchal writings. And this is the case that I show in the case of the patriarchs and matriarchs. We all talk about, oh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if you actually look at these stories, if we had listened to them, nobody would have gotten it right. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael, he got it wrong. It was because of Sarah's work, and she right or wrong, she got a lot of things wrong in that process too, or treatment of hate, etc. But nevertheless, God kept saying, it's Sarah's son. Sarah was as important to the covenant as Abraham was. And it was Sarah's son, and it was Sarah's actions that ensured that her son would receive the promise even though he was the second born. And that's true with uh, Isaac and Rebecca also. 
Isaac wanted Esau to get his birthright, his oldest son. But Rebekah had received a dream from God at their birth, telling her that, that uh, Jacob would be the son who would receive the birthright. Isaac ignored that prophecy. He ignored his wife. And so it was Rebecca, not Jacob, who orchestrated that whole subterfuge to make sure to get done what she knew God wanted done. Isaac, Isaac had his way. He would have been the Esau. And it goes on and on like that. And so uh, the women are the ones who are subverting any kind of patriarchy. There's one point where God says to Abraham, go and lishmoa, listen and obey your wife. Now, in a contemporary conservative Southern Baptist ideology, God couldn't possibly ever say that to a man about his wife. But that's because it's an ideology. It's not based on a careful reading. Of, well, it's based on a careal reading of scripture using a particular lens, ideological lens. But it's not based on a careful reading of scripture that um, sets aside that ideological lens. We see that while there is a patriarchy that supports the male head of household, it does not assume that the women do not, should not have agency, that the women often should not, should, that the women should not act on their own if they think their husband is doing wrong. Well, the women should not be important actors in the redemptive work of God. All of that shows up over and over. And I can go on beyond the Pentateuch and show you example after example of women who are subverting the patriarchy of their time because for God, patriarchy is not something that the Bible establishes. It, it assumes it as a social structure that exists at the time of the writing, but it does not establish it as normative and regulatory for how we are to act as fully functioning, believing, active Christians living in this world according to the precepts of Christ and the entire Bible. Well, so how do you think then, let's say an everyday churchgoer, um, to adopt this, this framework that you're talking about, which is not reading scripture in terms of that ideology one, but to what can be a helpful tool in, in developing this type of framework that you're really highlighting here? That it's the Bible is subverting these <laughs> passages that, that we might people, some people might cling to as an excuse to marginalize or oppress other people. Like, how can we start to develop that type of framework and lens to look, look at scripture and read it in that way? Well, I think our Bible study guide is a good way to start. Getting women together, studying the Bible together, asking what happens when we, um, when we center the women characters in the Bible? What changes that? Um, in academia, we use this, this term androcentric. Andros is Greek for male, centric, of course, centers. We have been trained, we women also, because we were trained by men, to read the Bible androcentrically. That is, to see the male characters as the center of every story. And um, it is mind-blowing when you just acknowledge that fact, and then you go back and you say, what happens when I center the female characters? And you reread those Bible stories. It, it, it's truly you know, it explodes your mind because you see things that your brain, possibly if you're a faithful Bible reader, you may have read these stories over and over a dozen times. But all of a sudden, because now you're reading through a new lens, you see things that your brain just had 
had not acknowledged because it wasn't looking for them. So I think that's an important first start. That's rewi- it's almost like you're, we, we're rewiring our brains and making oh. new ca- pathways and connections. Wow. Yes. That's really good and helpful. Thank you. And it's very exciting. All of a sudden, this book that you think you know, you realize, mm-hmm. oh God, there are things in here that I don't know at all. The rabbis have a saying about the Bible. They say it's a cri- like a crystal. They say, turn it and turn it, meaning mm-hmm. that look at it through a new interpretive lens lens of a woman, the lens of a marginalized pre- person, the lens of an Asian, an Asian American, a Latino, an African. These lenses have, have all been precluded to us because up until really the last 30 years or so, the only authorized interpreters of the Bible uh, in terms of the book that we were able to read, the, the access that we had to resources, were white European American or American clerics. So the Bible for 2000 years has really only been uh, mediated to us through a, a very narrow demographic. And it's not to say they are wrong. There are amazing scholars in that group that have just opened up so much to me and I've learned so much from. But it's, they don't have all to say. They don't own all truth. They don't can't see through all the prisms of that crystal. And it, we need those other voices. We need the Asian women. Israel is in Asia, in the continent of Asia. <laughs> it's, it's ways of being, is, uh, its understandings about culture are much closer to that of Asia and definitely to that of Africa than they are to us here in the United States today. Um, we need those other voices and we need the women. Thank you, Dr. K, for joining us today. This was a beautiful conversation and I will definitely be uh, re-listening to this and rereading your chapter with the wonderful questions that you ask us throughout your chapter as we're exploring the scriptures together. So I really appreciate you being, being here today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to support Isaac in producing this podcast or our overall mission of supporting AAPI and Latina women ministers, you can donate to Isaac at isaacweb.org.